like the period of time that we live in right now is tremendously important. This is the age where we are going to be making the decisions that will decide whether or not the future is more Starfleet or more Hunger Games. And the, the element that is actually going to decide which side we end up on is the human element. And that is to what degree can we eliminate our own fear so that we can get creative and collaborative enough to actually solve our problems. Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the fourth episode of Imagine Human. This episode is longer than our previous ones, but we found the content so compelling, we decided to keep and share the majority of it with you. Today we are joined by Nicole Bradford, the CEO of Willow Group and co-founder of the Transformative Technology Lab at Sophia University. In the first part of this recording, Nicole shares her personal journey discovering the mental and emotional benefits of developing a meditation practice and learning to quiet the recursive ruminating mind. She believes this is a pivotal time in humanity, noting increasing incidence rates of depression and interpersonal conflict globally. She believes we must consider and solve humans' mental and emotional well-being as well as physical well-being. In the second half of the recording, Nicole shares her vision for how this might be accomplished through the intersection of science, technology, and spiritual mind-body practices. Nicole shares her work establishing the Finder's Course, a scientific research and educational endeavor to scale meditation for 1 billion people by 2025. Nicole also speaks about this year's third annual Transformative Technology Conference this Friday and Saturday, October 13th and 14th. At the conference, Nicole unites the world's foremost authorities in neuroscience, computer technology, and spirituality fields to address scaling cognitive and emotional well-being for humanity. Please check our episode notes at imaginehuman.com to find resources for how you can start a meditative practice today and receive a discount to this year's Transformative Technology Conference. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're really excited to have you. Uh, we would love to get started and hear um, a little bit about your experience that led up to your involvement in the wellness and mental health space. Mm. So it's a funny story, actually. It's like a really odd story, um, though not one that other people might not relate to, because I find when I tell the story if someone else has had that experience too, then they always kind of laugh. And so I was running a, the China office of a company called Blizzard Entertainment. I was running operations and go to market for all the Blizzard properties. And I had started to meditate, but I hadn't really had transformation yet. Meditation at that point in my life was more of relaxation. And you know, I later came to understood, understand it because I wasn't properly fit to a technique. And that I'll 
you know, go into a little bit later, but um, it turns out that fit's really important. So the first couple of years when I was meditating, I would, would meditate, get really relaxed, and then I could go to work and get tight, you know, tight again. And so I was transitioning to a regional role at my company and had a month off. So decided to do three things. I went to get my scuba license. I, um, I went to Bhutan. So it was scuba license, Bhutan, and then I thought I'd go and um, meditate. <laughs> and so I had some friends who had done a Vipassana retreat in southern Japan. And um, they both said good things about it. It was really funny. It was these two guys that I knew in Shanghai. And they were both, they'd both been in the military and they'd both been tank commanders. And they were both meditators. And they were both friends of mine. So I probably knew the only two meditating tank commanders in China. And so <laughs> they um, so they both went to this one place. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just go there. And so I actually put that on the front end of the trip. And um, I had uh, what's called an awakening in that retreat. And it was a Vipassana retreat. The technique is body scanning. And you essentially take your mind through your body, first in tiny pieces and then in giant waves. And it was an extraordinary experience. It was an incredibly difficult experience. The, one of the things that happened is that as I would move my mind through my body, when I would get to kind of a a period of pain. It was the first time I was sitting too, and you would sit from 4 a.m. to 9 p.m. with hour breaks you know, twice a day. And so it was actually quite physically difficult and it was painful physically. And so there would be moments where I would take my mind into like the pain in my knee or something like that. And I would have an explosion of a memory that um, you know, things from my past. I had um, memories. I call it the Hall of Mirrors. Essentially what happened is I remembered every moment in my life where I had hurt someone else or hurt myself by not standing up for myself, not speaking up for myself. And, you know, in the Buddhist context of do no harm, like do no harm is a very high bar. And so the thing that was really interesting too is it's sort of like the camera came off is what I describe it as. So whereas many times you would see a, a memory and it's kind of like you looking at someone, I would see the face of the other person. And so like, or, or it would come off and the camera would move around and I would see it from like every different perspective. So one of my memories is I was eight and I was teasing my cousin about something. And uh, when he turned around with his back being to me, I actually saw his face. It was on the other side in the memory and he was crying. And it was like that for six days straight, all day long, every day, and while I was sleeping, every single thing, uh, my whole life. Um, 
you know, every sadness, every disappointment, every, every single thing. It was really difficult. Then on the sixth day, I go out into the courtyard and there was a tree that was filled with bees and it was, you know, the bees were, I mean, there were probably thousands of bees in the tree. And so you would just go and you could sit there and they didn't bother you. You didn't bother them. And so I'm sitting at the base of this tree looking up and I have a memory of being three. And I must have been around, it was around three and I was in a kiddie pool and there was a bee in the water and I scooped it up to save its life. And that was like the, you know, that was the moment of redemption. You know, it's like the Pandora's box, the hope was in the bottom. And that's when I realized that that was my nature. Um, and, you know, it was incredible. And the next three days were just really waves and waves of joy um, and a happiness that I had not even known was possible. And so it was interesting, too, because, you know, the... The other thing that happened, because the process of meditation quiets the, the recursive uh, thinking. So it quiets the, the chattering mind. And it's the chattering mind that mostly brings us uh, suffering. And it's mostly because the chattering mind doesn't talk about particle physics. It doesn't even talk about cookies. The chattering mind says everything that's wrong with you and everything, every reason why you should be afraid. And so, you know, in the process of meditating, my chattering mind declined dramatically. And so I felt extraordinary joy and incredible fearlessness. And when I walked out of that retreat, I could not believe the way that I felt and I couldn't believe that you know, 10 days that life could be so dramatically different. And before, if you had asked me if I was happy or anyone else, I would have said, yes, I had a glass half full mindset. No matter what, I always saw the silver lining in things. It was, you know, a nice person, pretty forgiving, didn't have, you know, didn't really carry grudges. <laughs> so I was happy, I thought. And um, I also thought that I was fearless. I moved to China by myself with um, out of family. I didn't speak any, I didn't speak any Mandarin and I was going to take on a new role in a, you know, growing new business. And it was the biggest job I'd ever had. And I also had you know, in many of those years after I got to China, I've, you know, I've jumped out of planes, I've done trapeze, I've ridden horses across Mongolia, I learned how to play polo and ride a horse at the same time, which is quite dangerous. <laughs> you know, I've had two fights, um, I like combat sports. So, you know, to all appearances, and to my own understanding, I was, you know, pretty badass but <laughs> when you know when I actually had true happiness of the mind not pushing or pulling and I actually had you know the mind uh, without the voice of fear um, then I found true fearlessness 
and I was so, you know, overwhelmed by it. And I felt like I had found like such a gift that I really wanted to share it with everyone. You know, I wanted to, you know, I felt like this was, you know, that in 10 days, if you could find peace, then, you know, what would happen if we could make that accessible to everyone? And so with that, I stayed at my company a little while longer, but I knew that I was going to come back to the U.S. and um, to work on, initially my plans had been to scale meditation. And then as I got into it, I wanted to scale the benefits of meditation. So uh, self-awareness, the ability to connect with other people, happiness and fearlessness. And then as I got into that and I learned more about and started tracking more of the global psychological data uh, where you can actually, I think, see a, you know, an acceleration in the suffering of the world that um, I expanded my mission to support the mental and emotional well-being of humans. And I think that that is the, I think that is the, the key to the, um, to the future of our species, really, because the problems that are facing us are the biggest problem facing us is not technical. You know, the are if you sort of like track all the biggest technologies that people are working on, and I, and you know, I know you guys do with this podcast, then you know that the the pace of human uh, technical ability, the pace of human progress, is ridiculous. Like every single day, there's a medical breakthrough. There's a breakthrough in like an engineering breakthrough. Like every single day, somewhere in the world, um, extraordinary things are happening, and so our our technical progress is is going very quickly. And you know the the th- three biggest problems that we have to deal with. One is the the um, energy generation. The second is food production, and the third is waste, because those three things are driving climate change. So that's a big set of problems. Um, and so when I look at, you know, what our species needs, a lot of the things that we are, a lot of the challenges that we have, and I think the things that are a drag really on our ability to, to you know, go into the like next evolution of what's possible for us to be um, is the human part. It's the human fear. Um, it's the human disconnection to one another. It's you know the 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 inability to love one another. And um, I think that you know the the core of my work really is to support the mental and emotional well-being of humans, to reduce the fear. Um, level so that we can connect and communicate and thus solve the tra- the technical problems because then we finally have the the creativity, the collaboration, the freedom and the will uh, to do so. Um, and so that's why I do what I do. How have you taken this like profound experience in your life and adapted it to your day to day? And how do you keep it alive? How do you keep that joy ever present? 
Well, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the journey is not the end of the journey by any means. And so that first awakening I had, you know, I, I was pretty fearless for about um, six, like really fearless for about six months. And I also had a dramatic decline in self-referential thinking. And so that eventually came back, but I never believed in it anymore. You know, so it's like I didn't take it as seriously. I was I was clear that my thoughts and myself are not the same thing. So, um, so it wasn't you know perfection in the moment, and then, <laughs> you know I had to sort of keep working at it. And so, one of the things that um, also made a big difference is I was introduced when I was in Hong Kong to the person who was my co-founder at the Transformative Technology Lab, and and who developed the finder's course protocol based on his research. He did a 1200 person, eight year global study, psychological study using quanti uh, quantitative and qualitative measurements on people who were experiencing awakening, uh, oneness, unity, consciousness. There's a, over 200 words that the, you know, that the religions and philosophies, um, you know, of, of civilization have used to describe this place inside of ourselves, you know, that we can, that we can reach that is, you know, also I think tied to really unlocking our full potential. And so, um, Dr. Jeffrey Martin, he had just been, he had just finished his global study and was thinking about what he might do with it. And we were introduced by Gino Yu, who is the head of the media lab at Hong Kong Poly U, which is sort of like the Asia version of MIT Media Lab. And Gino knew that I wanted to use technology for the ways that I've described. And that was also Jeffrey's intention. And so we got together and the first conversation, the first time we met, we talked for 10 hours straight. And at the end of it, decided to uh, take his research and turn it into a, a protocol that could be, that could become the front end of a consumer facing study. Because all of the people that he had studied in his, his um, original study were people who had already transitioned. And so you only essentially had B data, but you didn't have A data. So if you could find a way to actually trigger that, then you could get A, B data and you could maybe see what was happening in the middle and then maybe scale whatever that was. And so one of the things that he had done is that in his entry questionnaire for the study, his study for his PhD, he had asked these people, to what did they attribute their awakening? And so they, you know, described what it is they had been doing at the time. And because a lot of the traditions are progression paths, there's different things at different times. And so we essentially took that database and sorted it by frequency. I know it sounds kind of simple. <laughs> But um, sorted it by frequency and looked at all the things that were on the top. So there are plenty of practices that, you know, that 
people attributed their awakening to, like some of the movement practices. Um, but in terms of frequency, you know, they didn't necessarily come up to the very top. And so it was all of the, the most frequent. And then we removed anything that uh, was unsuitable for beginners. Like one of the more powerful traditions out there are the ones that work with uh, Kundalini. And it is my belief that, you know, Kundalini should only be attempted with a talented teacher. It is, you know, one of the things about meditation is that meditation is not a toy. It is a very powerful tool. And so uh, we took out Kundalini um, because we wanted to create a protocol that would allow us to distribute it globally and to collect um, data and hopefully see, you know, more AB and get some more AB data um, so we could figure out, you know, what was actually happening. Because Jeffrey also had done a small, um, right around this time, he had done a, a small pilot uh, with five people that he recruited from people who had written to him over the years. And we, because the other thing we were doing also with the protocol is the, you know, when I look at my path, I spent several years um, doing something that did not really make a difference for me. Now, one could say that maybe there's something, you know, that, that it was paving the way for my later experience. But I do know that, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder that if I had started with Vipassana, would I have, you know, sort of experienced relief at a sooner stage. And so what I also wanted to do is, you know, help people find their fit help people very quickly find the right techniques for them. Because if you think about how people come to a meditative practice, it's usually through a friend, through a culture, or through whichever book they pick up in, this, in the bookstore. I mean, that's, that's really how it happens. And, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of crazy. That's like taking someone else's med medication. It's like the luck involved. I'm not a fan of you know, I believe in luck, but I don't count on it. And so the amount of luck that's involved to have the, to find the technique that actually will give you a transition uh, is pretty big. And because most people, most of these techniques are embedded within cultural systems or philosophical systems or religious systems, people usually buy the whole system in order to get to the technique. And so as a result, you know, the, um, there are people who join a belief system that has a technique set that's actually not going to give them an awakening. And so one of the things that we believe is that it's really important for people to just go ahead and separate the two. It's like the beliefs and the mechanisms for meditation do not have to be the same thing. And so with the finders course, what we did is we took um, a combination of, of these highly frequent techniques 
mixed with positive psychology, and I'll tell you why in a moment. And we put it into a four-month protocol that is essentially a, a battery. It's like, you know, it's kind of, it's better than the alternative, but it is also kind of inelegant in that it is, uh, we, you know, I jokingly call it the gauntlet. And so what we do is without any religion, philosophy, dogma of any kind, any history, uh, we run people through four months of different meditation techniques, changing the cocktail every single week, the combination of things, and essentially sort of, you know, battering at their sense of that they're at their egoic self. Um, and so we have, you know, the first time when we did the pilot, you know, I was coming at it from a fit matter standpoint. Jeffrey was coming at it from, you know, I think this might, you know, trigger a transition. And in that first pilot, everybody woke up and it was kind of like, like we didn't actually think that was going to happen. <laughs> um, and now we're at over 600 and we have a 74% uh, rate of people having awakenings. Um, and so that's pretty special. And, you know, we have done it as, as a consumer facing part of the study. Um, so there were people who were not and then transitioned. And so um, we have tons of data, um, qualitative, a lot of qualitative self-assessment, quantitative self-assessment. And then about at the beginning of this year, we added heart rate variability, galvanic skin response, and EEG measurements while people were meditating. And so uh, we have, you know, we're coming into the end of those cohorts that are up that are using um, devices and at the end of this year we'll complete um, the research portion and we have some you know extraordinarily talented data scientists who are now going through the data but because since we know on a week-by-week -week basis what everyone's doing what their self-assessments are we also have their bio data um, and we know at the end if they transitioned or not, or if they transitioned in the middle, we know when they do. So what we're looking for is the bio signal of transitioning. Like, how do you know? Can you see it? Like, we don't have an answer and maybe we won't find anything. Uh, but that is, um, so that is the protocol. So the first thing I did to answer your original question, the first thing was the Vipassana course. The second thing I did is I took the finders course that had a really big impact on me. And then after that, the, the third big thing that I did was I took, um, I studied with Dan Brown, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And, you know, and that had a big transition. And then the last part, um, most recently I just did the Hoffman process, uh, which was all e working with emotion. So everything that I'd done before had been very mind. And the Hoffman process is embodied heart. And, you know, with that, I feel, I feel complete. And also, you know, it's like the, the, I don't really have any, um, I never thought I'd feel the way that I do. 
you know, I never thought that I would feel the way that I do. I feel, I feel um, pretty amazing. And I'm not, and even when things are not the way I'd like for them to be, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of things that, you know, I have a lot of projects I'm working on. There's things that I would love if they were going faster or, if, you know, in a variety of things. But, you know, I feel fundamentally okay. Um, and, you know, it's so funny. It's like we live in such a culture of happiness that or people desiring happiness or, or people chasing peaks experiences. And I've certainly done that, too. And I remember years ago when we first started this, when I would talk to people who had been in Jeffrey's study, you know, who had experienced things and they would say that they feel okay. I remember thinking, who wants to just feel okay? <laughs> like, yeah. like, don't you want to yeah. feel great? But there is something about being like fundamentally okay. That's really special. So what I do every day, it's like I, I actually don't, I don't need to meditate as much as I used to. I just, um, you know, I sort of tap into that fundamental okayness. So you're working on the study right now, and that's a big project for you. And uh... I do a lot. I do several different things. So um, a couple of ways that I show up in the world is that one, we have the transformative technology lab. The lab does three things. The first thing that it does is it supports basic research. So um, Jeffrey supports uh, doctoral and postdoctoral students in their PhD, post-PhD work, who are looking at um, psychology, specifically around this sort of thing. We have two medical-grade EEG machines, so people are able to do their studies and get readings. So it's it's pretty, you know, important. The second thing we do is create community. And to that end, we have a have the conference um, that's annual that's coming up in um, that's on October 13th and 14th. And uh, we also have an advisory board that is interdisciplinary and it's a mix between industry, the academy, hardware and software. And, you know, people from many different walks of, of life. And, you know, one of the things it's like you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that there's such a barrier really between hardware and software people and industry and the academy, but there is a big barrier. So we feel, well, everyone's very silo in their approach. And so what we've done with TransTech is we've created a tent where you can have positive computing, effective computing, you can have you know, hardware manufacturers, you can have wearable people and smart home people and, you know, anyone who is, whose work moves towards humanity having a greater understanding of oneself and a greater ability to connect to one another and to have more mental and emotional well-being in the process. And then the third thing that we do is we support entrepreneurs. And so with that, we have been for this is our second year of having designated a thing that we call the transformative tech 200 and those are companies that we think are moving this space forward 
And so on the surface, someone might look at something and not know why it's on there. Like our first year we had DARPA on there and there were people who were like, why is DARPA on that list? Because this is all about, you know, well-being and love and that's not what government experiments do. It's like, well, you know, actually a lot of the, um, you know, the, the research that, that DARPA has done on neuroscience and some other things, it's like they're a major contributor to understanding the human mind um, and the human brain. And um, so that's why they were on the list. So we just finished our second year. And um, we've also been communicating to various investors and helping them see the space so that we can support companies in order to get the angel seed stage funding that they need to move forward. Because technology for quite a long time has really just been focused on efficiency and productivity. And I think it's just really sort of a maturation of technology where people are starting to ask, what else can this do for us? And to be interested in supporting human emotional quality, um, the quality of our lives. And so this year at the TransTech conference, I'm really excited to say there are just in the funds alone that are focused on raising consciousness, expanding the mental and emotional well-being of people, creating joy. There's going to be at this year's conference, there's going to be people representing 200 million of committed capital specifically for this end. And that's pretty extraordinary. Um, so, you know, I think we've actually contributed to that happening, um, especially, you know, in, in one or two particular cases, because we were able to define the space for people and let them see, you know, what it was. We connected the dots. So there's that. And then on the research side, the finders course is the name of the study. And we have operated that for the last uh, several years. And we're, and that is operated by the Willow Group. And um, Jeffrey is the chief scientist for that. And so we are finishing up the research and we'll just convert it into a commercial class. And right now, you know, the, the course is $2,000 because to the, the level of monitoring that we do uh, for four months, like it's not actually a small feat. And so now that we're going to close up the research part and turn it into just a purely commercial course that anyone can take, then, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to lower the price and make it more accessible. And then we're kind of, you know, moving on. So we'll probably always operate it um, or have it in operation, but that's not going to be our focus. Now we're going to look at the data, see what the data tells us, and then figure out what our next research project is going to be. That's great. Um, so looking at the website uh, of Willow Group, something that really struck a chord with me was your mission. And uh, at Willow it says, our mission is to permanently move a billion people into a state of fundamental well-being by 2025, mm -hmm. um, which is a great goal. And I'd love to hear more about how you guys came up with that. 
the goal or this number? <laughs> Both. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Both. yeah. Well, it's sort of, you know, um, if you look at the headlines today, or if you have a Twitter account, um, and you sort of like look at the world today, one of the things, like when I look at a lot of the polarization that's out there, I don't really think about people having this position or that. All I really see is fear, 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 and more fear. And that's really what's going on. And so, you know, if you think about what it will take to to put humanity on a different path. You know, this is a very, like the, the 10 years right now that we live in, um, it, like the period of time that we live in right now is tremendously important. And I think, you know, I think it's probably every generation that thinks that their generation was the most important. <laughs> but I actually think that, you know, our generation, and I'm including us, you know, in the same generation, um, even though I'm a bit older than you guys, um, is the age, you know, the age that we live in. This is the age where we are going to be making the decisions that will decide whether or not the future is more Starfleet or more Hunger Games. Like, do we get an abundant future? Or we get a dystopian one. And the, the element that is actually going to decide which side we end up on is the human element. And that is to what degree can we eliminate our own fear so that we can get creative and collaborative enough to actually solve our problems. Because think about, you know, sometimes, like one of the things I love to do is I um I chat up my Uber drivers all the time. Like, I just talk to them. And so I got in the car the other day, and there was this guy who was listening to an incredibly conservative radio station. And so I asked him, I'm like, oh, so are you a conservative? And he was like, yes, I am. And so, you know, we, we, and he was like, why are you asking me, do you work for an NGO? Are you an activist? <laughs> and I was like, I was Great like, you know, <laughs> I'm actually really interested in people and why they, you know, why they believe what, you know, or what's important to them. And so he and I had this fabulous conversation. Our political beliefs couldn't be more different, but we had this fabulous connected conversation and you know, that is the thing. It's like the fear is getting in the way of, of those types of things. And the other thing is that the fear is doing is it's really, it's, um, I think one of the things that's going on too is that the world is changing and people can feel it and they don't really know what, like they, they, they outside of, you know, certain places, where you get a lot of information about the changes that are happening. People can, you know, see the the change in the number of jobs of the past. You know, they can they can see these these things that they used to count on to help them make meaning. 
And, you know, so it's like if you look around the world, too, there's this, I track a lot of studies. And so one is the, there's a few global studies on trust that are done by the Pew Charitable Trust and also on by the Gallup poll. And so all around the world, the level of trust in religion, organized religion, governments, media, economic structure, you know, like people, they see that it's getting harder and harder to make ends meet. If you're, you know, in a certain part of the country or, or um, in a certain country. And so when people don't believe that the lives of their children will be better than their own, then they, you know, look for, well, it becomes quite easy to tell them that the cause is that immigrant or that woman or that person of color or that country or conservatives or liberals or whatever. And so the fear is really getting in the way. So to answer your question, how do we come up with that goal? It was, you know, what is, what would, what would, what critical mass do we think would, you know, actually be absolutely certain that we would have pushed the weight to the side of more federation <laughs> than, you know, <laughs> uh, than Hunger Games. And so that's, that's sort of where it came from. This is the most important time. The work that you guys are doing is incredibly important as well um, because this is, the, this is the time where the, we're living in the real crunch of the exponential technologies. And, you know, this is the, you know, the people alive today are the ones, oh, the people who are adults, um, in decision making now and you know 10 years from now um, are the ones who are really going to you know shape which way we go by the choices that we make and to the degree to which they commit to their own awakenings another question I have is um, what would you say is the largest setback in the space right now in mental wellness and health and what you know, if, if we could resolve something, what would that look like to you? Well, the biggest setback in the entire space for mental wellness and health is just really how far behind the numbers we are. So if you, again, if you look at global data on stress, anxiety, depression, suicide, it's accelerating all over the world. And it is across all cultures, cohorts, both genders. Um, it's getting really young in terms of like very young children reporting, you know, high levels of stress. And um, it's not going to, like, I don't see that. I feel like we're chasing that. The World Health Organization estimates that depression will be the leading disease burden by 2030. And then on the other side, you know, with the rise of the automation line, we are going to be doing more being than doing. And we're not really great at being. <laughs> it wasn't a priority in the past, but we have to be really great at being. And then in addition, 
our entire education system was set up to prepare people to work in factories. And all of that's going away. So the things that really matter, creativity, collaboration, communication, the things that will you know, ensure that someone is employable in the future, um, the place where all the innovation comes from, is fundamentally the thing that we don't teach. And, um, and then the people who do teach it are very much caught in the, you know, they, they, there is um, many of the people who do teach these types of things also believe that they can only be taught one-to-one and they have a distrust of technology um, and a belief that the tech is the problem. Um, and so, you know, the, the, like the really biggest setback is actually that we're late. Um, you know, and we have to move very, very quickly. The positive things that are happening is that more and more of the people who teach these types of things, whether spiritual, mental, or emotional, are becoming more, you know, are opening their minds to looking for uh, ways to leverage technology. And one of the things that really inspires me is I was really inspired by uh, Gary Kasparov. Mm-hmm. And when he lost to Deep Blue and was beaten playing chess, the chess champion by a computer, he did not cry. He did not petition the International Chess Federation to not allow computers to play chess. He became an advocate of what's called and created a category called advanced freestyle or centaur chess. And because he asked himself, it's like, what if you could have the intuition, the creativity, the imagination of a human paired with the processing power um, and the you know ability to review the probabilities of a computer. And so this category is basically humans and computers playing as partners. And there's a great TED talk that you can look up to hear his details. But um, when a human plays a computer in chess, the computer is more likely to win. When a human and computer play a computer, the human-computer combination wins. When a human and computer combination who have been trained to work with one another, so not just the human sort of like calling on the computer, but the computer, um, you know, designed to work in sort of coordination and collaboration with the human, that combination just dominates everything. And I think that really is our sort of our future path. And so, you know, as an example of how you can combine humanity with technology. And so, you know, what's, what are the missteps? I actually think things are, you know, are moving in the right direction. Um, I think that more and more people are open to this. I think as more people are starting to see the global data, um, I particularly have a sense of urgency because I do think we have a window and it's roughly 10, you know, maybe it's 10 to 15 years that if we don't have more people, um, you know, who have experienced um, an awakening, however they get it, versus those who don't 
Um, you know, and then those people making choices about how we making choices or having conversations about how we use the technology that's around us. Like, you know, the, the genetic engineering that's coming is pretty extraordinary. And if we, you know, it's one of those things, it's like, we have to be able to have a conversation about the future of the human race, because if we don't have a calm conversation about it and decide sort of collectively what we will do, there will be a hard fork because there will be the people who are all in on, you know, enhancing intelligence, lifespan, like those things are going to be doable. And so then it's like, you know, you would actually like right now when people think about uh, people of different backgrounds, it's really sort of bias that makes them think that there's a difference, you know, but uh, there's a future coming where there will actually be a difference. Um, and so it's like, we have got to be, get conscious quickly um, so that, you know, we can make sort of like species level collective decisions. Well, it's also, it's like, if you took the best teachers in the world, they would have to teach all day, every day. And like, right. it's it still only, yeah. like, it's not scalable. Yeah. It's not scalable. What do you think of Headspace? Um, I send a lot of people to it as a first oh, yeah. stop. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like when someone's when someone says um, they'd like to learn to meditate, yeah. there's like they need to be able to do something mm-hmm. that day. Yeah. Or they might never come back to it. And the Headspace 10 for 10 onboarding program, mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like you know, people, it makes people believe that it's doable. They do it, you know. Um, and they get some short-term benefits immediately. Yeah, yeah, and it gets them, it gets them, it makes them believe that they can meditate. Right. You know, I mean, it's not a, it's, it's a, I mean, I, I haven't looked at it lately to see what they're doing. Um, you know, they're, it has the, you know, like anything, it's got the, any single tradition program is going to, face fit problems, mm-hmm. you know, because different things really work for different people. So any single tradition is going to have the people that are just like, oh my gosh. And Headspace, at least as it was originally recorded, is a um, Tibetan um, a Tibetan uh, program, mostly doing the preliminaries. Um, so there are going to be people that it just doesn't work for. But then I also I know people who have, like do it every day for, you know, the last year. So I, I think it's a great, a great place to, I send people there. I, the first thing I do is I tell them download Headspace, do the 10 day free mm-hmm. download insight timer and start to experiment with a couple of other things. And then I, We'll usually ask them a few questions about the things that they like because there's six major families of meditation. And, you know, what we find in our research is that some of them are anticorrelated even. So, like, there's a, there's a tradition called actual freedom, which is a, um, it is a, a it's based off of, uh, Neo Advaita, but um, it's like an embodied 
um, joy is the way to it's the way to describe it. Like you, you observe the world as if it were uh, you 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 bring an extraordinary level of delight to all of your observation. So you're very intentional about creating that. But and and it you know the you start to see things in a different way. It's a little bit trippy in that like a mosaic sidewalk can like you could stop there for a half an hour like you can really sort of like get caught in the natural beauty of the world when you're doing it really seriously and um so that one's a little anti-correlated to direct inquiry which is you know a a um a difficult but powerful you know um, tool where you're sort of essentially asking questions until the mind has nowhere to go and eventually the the mind like there's like a it's almost like you cause a glitch in the in the mainframe that allows the mind to see that the self isn't real and it's a it's a difficult set of practices but it's like we find that if people love direct inquiry they you know typically do not like embodied delight and vice versa so um so there's these six major families and so often if i'm just talking to someone you know in passing i'll ask them a few questions um the mantras and um mantras tend to do really well for busy-minded people so like type a's do really well with mantras and um and so it's pretty like mantras are really w effective body scanning is really effective basically techniques that actually have the mind doing something that works really well for type a's so i'll tell people download headspace do the 10 day download insight timer experiment and then if i could get a sense of like what they tend to you know what would get them started um, then i'll you know recommend that they try something and then you know the finders course is always an option it is the fastest way to try everything that works the most. <laughs> like it really is, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the other thing that we do in the finders course is we don't say it's like like we're not we're not you're not going to be Bruce Lee in a technique in one week. Like that doesn't happen. But you will know by the end of it which families work for you, so that you can start your your journey there, mm -hmm. and you can work with a teacher in that area. Like we have really great relationships with several really well-known spiritual teachers, several of whom, like the ones who are, you know, very, um, like they really are everything that they say they are. They actually send their, their students to us. There's quite a few very famous spiritual teachers who send students to us. You know, people who, you know, for whatever reason are not like making progress or who they, you know, think would benefit from other other experiences. We also have had spiritual teachers take the class, and uh, we only do that when there's enough of them that they can be in a, a group together. Because, as one might imagine, like that's not something like you don't want to have. Like you wouldn't want to be in a group, a study group with you know some super famous spiritual teacher. It would be really bad for you, probably for like really distracting. And so we tend to wait till we have. Um, six of those because we do people take the class in groups of six 
um, because some of the techniques are paired and some of them are actual group meditation. So not meditating as a group, but the group um, sort of co-creating a meditative space. And so it's, uh, it takes, you know, it takes about four, minimum of four people really to do that one. So that's why we have groups of six, but um, people really love it. So we have uh, pods is what we call them. We've had pods that have been together and continue to meet weekly um, for three years. Mm. You know, like they get together and they meditate online, uh, you know, every week. And so, um, and so when we have teachers take it, it's usually because, you know, many of them are single lineage. And so they've never really, you know, they're really good at the one that they're in and they had an awakening in it. So they never really had a reason to do anything else. And ours is a very efficient way of experiencing a lot of different techniques. And so they quite enjoy it. And, um, you know, I had a found, you know, benefit from it. And uh, it's mostly just sort of like professional, <laughs> you know, a pr- professional relationship. Like, oh, you know, um, peers. I, actually, that's the right word. It's like a professional peerage kind of thing. Because, you know, Jeffrey and I have no interest in starting a, we're not starting anything in a terms of, there's yeah, we're not there. starting a new tradition. Um, you know, there's plenty of, there's plenty of, of, you know, traditions and teachers in the world. The last thing the world needs is yet another one. <laughs> you know, yeah. what the world needs is ways to um, leverage, scale, and accelerate mm-hmm. awakening. So um, that's what we do. What kind of role is the social element playing in the success of these students' spiritual awakening? I mean, if they're still in communication after they're done with your program, that kind of attests to something profound at the level of interacting with someone else? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, you know, when you are... So in the course, what they do is they spend... Um, we establish groups at the end of the second week and then people meet with their group weekly. And, um, so every, you know, at the minimum they're meeting once a week to do check-ins and to do, to do different techniques together. And sometimes during some sections, people are meeting four or five times a week. And so one, you're getting to know someone really well, you're becoming friends. Like one of the things that we do too is we do not allow people who know each other to be in the same group. And we, I mean, we've done, we have done that in the past, but now we don't allow it. And we don't allow couples to be in the same group either. Because as you're, you know, a lot of times there's many parts of our personality that are anchored to, there's parts of our personality that are actually anchored to other people. So an example would be, you know, for many years, when I would go home, my sister and I would fight like we were 13 years old because we were sort of like anchored to that past. And so as you're really changing and evolving, it's better to not have someone that reminds you, that has a self, that you have a piece of yourself anchored to who you used to be with them. So one of the reasons why the groups are really close is that the people are evolving and changing together. You know, and so then, so they get to experience that. And so it's like, and the class is really, really intense. Like, you know, the, 
people often say that when the class ends, it feels like someone broke up with them, <laughs> you know, in the <laughs> sense that it's like, because we, you know, it's like at the end of the course. So we've started to develop additional content and we have another course called the Explorers course, which is, you know, less in the protocol, but more things that more interesting things that we found in the, um, in the surveys of the other people. So it's like interesting things. Um, but the group, the group is a big part of it. We have a, you know, we have a very low dropout rate. It's like less than 20%. You know, if people, if people, um, get into the groups, then they don't, they don't drop. And, um, most online education, because the courses are completely online. So we have students from around the world and, uh, we've had people all the way from Australia to Croatia to, you know, Saudi Arabia, like, like people everywhere. And most online education has, if you have 15% of your students completing the course, it's pretty amazing. And for us, we have less than 20% dropping out. So we have like huge completion rates, um, you know, and it's very, very intense. And so I think the other thing that brings people together is the intensity, you know, of it. It's like, you've had an experience. So these, you know, when you're at the end of it, these people truly understand, like you, you have this shared intense experience, you have, you know, weekly, you know, honesty and intimacy, um, and you've, you know, evolved and expanded and in most cases had a, you know, had a transition together. The shared adverse experience is definitely something I think we can relate to going through school together. <laughs> um, and the anchors remind me of horcruxes from Harry Potter and mm -hmm. how we kind of store our souls away into, into, I mean, in this case, other people. Yeah. It's one of those things that's like the, I remember when I first started reading a lot of, you know, a lot of books on non-duality and, um, and they basically talk about, you know, no self and the end of self. And, and I remember thinking, I remember thinking, I like myself. <laughs> or, you know, myself is how I got here. I don't want to get rid of myself. And then, you know, what I realized, really, it was at the end of that first Vipassana, is that um, it's like the we think that the self is solid. And so we have this sense like this is our solid self. And then at a certain point, you begin to realize that the self is, we actually have lots of selves and that the self isn't solid. And when you realize that this thing that you thought was this sort of like monolith is actually not, and that it's actually like quite, you know, uh, fluid then fighting for it is a little bit like fighting over a, you know, a dead mouse, <laughs> you know, you're like, what's the point <laughs> of that? And I remember, you know, being, I remember reading, there was a period of time as like, I was starting to realize that the, like, you know, my grip on myself or my sense of self, how tightly I held on to like, who's this Nicole? Um, you know, that was starting to loosen up. And then I was talking to a lot of neuroscientists and, you know, learning some mind blowing things about essentially how, you know, our brains fill in a lot of details 
on the fly to create our sense of reality. So, you know, if you are in an fMRI and you are looking at an image, there is more data coming from your visual cortex than coming in through your eye because your eye, your brain is filling it in. And that's why you can see those things, those um, sometimes, you know, David Eagleman did a great PBS study on the brain where they showed that if you provided enough distraction, you could have someone in a gorilla suit walk mm-hmm. past yeah. and no one would see it. Mm-hmm. And it's because like our brains are actually creating reality on the fly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then really, I, you know, I studied a lot of um, Tibetan philosophy early on and, um, you know, and they talk about the, or Buddhist philosophy, and they talk about the sense doors. And in the Buddhist philosophy, you know, they continually talk about how reality is created, you know, how our, how our sense doors is creating our sense of what we think reality is. So it's like the Buddhist philosophy says that, the neuroscientists say that, I was starting to experience pieces of that. And then I also read Sapiens that then was talking about how culture is actually really like the stories that we think are true are actually the ones that we create. And so, you know, instead of being threatened by that, like that, like that understanding that actually everything is fluid, I became really excited about that because that's when I was certain that, um, you know, we could shift the direction of mankind. We just have to have, we have to have a different story and enough people to see it and believe in it um, to change it all. Thank you, Nicole. Before you go, can you quickly summarize the Transformative Technology Conference happening at the end of this week? So the most amazing conference for mental and emotional well-being and technology is coming up. It's called the Transformative Tech Conference. It's on October 13th and 14th. And it is, I think, so much exciting content. At the Trans Tech Lab, we look at a variety of different uh, technologies. We look at everything from emotion recognition software and AI to neurostim, biostim, And so what we have at the conference is, you know, all of the speakers are working on things that are medically validated and scientifically validated, but are, you know, are usable for the mental and emotional well-being of humans. So we're going to have Mary Lou Jespin, who is the founder of Open Water, and she's working on a miniaturized fMRI, which would revolutionize healthcare because it's one of the more expensive you know, scans that one can have, but is also the thing that would make brain-to-brain communication potentially possible. And so if you think about how, you know, much misunderstanding comes from, you know, the, the really the limitations of our language, that if you could actually, if someone could actually, if we could actually communicate with one another with our um, images and feelings, you know, then that, you know, potentially could reduce a great deal of conflict with the human race. Um, then there's another guy named Lou Lin, Dr. Lou Lin, who is going to be um, showing their, he's going to be showing what they're doing with light 
And so light is really exciting. It's like one of the more cutting edge fields and it's um, optogenetics. And people are able to use light for pain, for reducing inflammation. Um, and it's the, taken very seriously. It could also be used for depression. In uh, Dr. Lim's case, he's gonna be showing um, one of their protocols that has early good signs for Alzheimer's. Are these flashing lights in front of the eyes? Um, well, they're, they're different ways. Some of it's like stick things up your nose and put them in your ears and stuff like that. You'll have to come and see. Um, <laughs> okay. And then um, we're going to have people who, who are talking about brain stimulation, uh, which, you know, that's uh, most people are doing brain stimulation for task acquisition. We, um, we have lots of people in the community who are doing vagal nerve stimulation, uh, which is really exciting. And, um, yeah, so it's like, it's an amazing conference. And then the community is filled with people who want to make products, um, that help people, um, in this way. So lots of entrepreneurs, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an engineer, if you're a neuroscientist, if you're in HR and responsible for the healthcare of a large population and you want to find out what's coming, um, this is the place to come. Cool. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. Don't forget to check out our website at imaginehuman.com for additional resources on how you can begin your meditative practice today. And check out the Transformative Technology Conference this Friday and Saturday. For those who cannot attend, we will leak the website and our favorite talks for you following the conference. As always, we appreciate your support. Don't forget to share with your friends, family, and pets, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. We are always looking for interesting people to interview for Imagine Human. If you know of someone, please contact us on social media or email us at imaginehuman17 at gmail.com.